0: Well, we're in our 10th week of a journey through the entire Old Testament narrative, the story of God in us before the advent of Jesus. The Bible is not, as some perceive it to be, a collection of separate stories, each with a good moral. The Bible is one story, and it's not so much the story of us and how to live our lives. It's a story about God and how he invites us into his life. Last week, we left Jacob settling into his life. You may recall how he got into that life with Laban, marrying the two daughters is pretty tumultuous, but by the time we'd finished, he had kind of settled in. Now, the problem is that when you're settled in, when you're comfortable, that's never a place where God's going to bring transformation. And God is always about transforming us. He's committed to finishing that work in our life, and he will pursue that. That's what we're going to see today. When we're settled, when we're comfortable, God will unsettle us. He will grapple with us because we need to be in challenging places for real change to happen. And so we're jumping forward to what is the most challenging, the most decisive part of Jacob's story, and it's Genesis chapter 32. This is a real turning point for him. An experience with God that changes him forever the real question we're in search of today, uh, answers of which we're in search of today, is this question. How can I have a life-changing encounter with God like that? I'm going to share four things that we learned from this encounter with God that are essential elements to an authentic, transformational, regenerational work of God. So let's start reading in verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and the man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near that tendon. We classically refer to this as Jacob wrestling with God. In fact, your Bible probably has that like mine does right up here. Jacob wrestles with God, but it's not quite accurate. What this is, is God wrestling Jacob. You need to understand that because it totally changes the story. You have to remember, as we've talked about earlier, that the Old Testament narrative is very sparse in its choice of words. If it's not there, if it doesn't give answers, like where Lot's wives came from and the like, it isn't important to the storyline. If it is in there, it's important that we pay notice of it. And one of the things you see here mentioned several times is daybreak. Three times we see it. At dawn, pictures for us a whole new day for him. So it's a new name, it's a new man, it's a new day. He enters into a new life. The word for wrestled is only used once in the Bible, and that's right here. The fact is we're really not sure of the translation of it. We surmise wrestling because clearly in the context, that's the activity that's going on. The tense of the word is to say that this wrestling happened to Jacob. In other words, God is the one that starts this wrestling match with Jacob. The root word is abak, which means dust. Jewish theologians say that God kicked up the dust with Jacob. It's a very picturesque image, and it speaks of God personally coming down and engaging with him. It's interesting that God engages Jacob at the point of his primary character because Jacob's name means wrestler, heel grabber. He's a grappler his whole life. And so what does God do? God comes down into that very character point. That is where he chooses to engage him. So wrestle is an important word. And what I want to share with you first is what we're going to call life change lesson number one. And that is God initiates. He grapples with us in order to bring about transformation in our life. We look at these Old Testament stories, and for many of us, we've been raised in them. So our first experience of these great patriarchs of the faith is through our Sunday school lessons where they've been cleaned up, turned into squeaky clean heroes of the faith. But there are very few real heroes in the Old Testament. It's not a moral play with role models. It's about people who need God's grace. It's about a God who steps into the lives of people who are incapable of fulfilling their part, but because he's faithful to his call in their life and his covenant with them, he makes it happen. We like to look at this and say, Jacob pursued God. No, you miss this story if you think that's what's happening here. God is pursuing Jacob. God initiates. Let's Talk about the background that leads to this. Remember, the theme of Jacob's life is blessing. He spends his whole life in pursuit of it. He was born a twin. Esau, the elder, just by literally seconds. Jacob coming out behind him, holding his heel, which speaks of what his whole life was to be about. That's his name, Jacob, heel catcher. What marks and sets up Jacob's whole life is this reality early on. Isaac loved Esau. Jacob spent his whole life pursuing, longing for, working for the blessing and affirmation of his father. He manages to manipulate everything around him in order to achieve. He's so desperate for that blessing. We saw the robbed birthright and the stolen blessing, Esau swearing to kill him, and finally we see Jacob on the run. He won the battle for the birthright and the blessing, but he lost the war. He loses everything, and he heads off. And you know the story of the con artist being conned by his stepfather, Leah coming as his wife, and then Rachel. And then he settles in. He has now, in this time, finally accomplished some wealth. And as a result of that, tension has begun to develop, and it gets kind of dangerous. Hostilities could break out, When God speaks to Jacob and says, it's time for you to go home. It's time for you to face up to the situation there. And then God gives him this promise, I will be with you. So Jacob flees Laban. The story's pretty interesting. Laban comes out after him. And fortunately, they make peace. But in making peace, Jacob burns that bridge. Jacob has no place to return to. And as he's about to come into his homeland, he sends messengers ahead and he lets them know he's coming. They've returned and they say to him, Esau is also coming out to meet you. He is bringing 400 men. Now remember, Esau has sworn to take the life of Jacob when he sees him. What is Esau bringing with him? Well, I'll tell you what I think it looks like. It sounds like an army. And that's how Jacob sees it. So here he is now, quite literally, between a rock and a hard place. There's no turning back, and there's no going forward. Everything will be decided in this place within the next day. He sends portions of his wealth in waves on in front of him. He's using humble terms, Esau is my lord, my master, and he's giving his wealth to Esau in waves. And he doesn't know what's happened to them. For all he knows, Esau has killed everything. He doesn't know. He puts his family in a safe place. And before he meets Esau, he goes off to meet with God. He's alone. He is now broke. He is stuck. And it's in that place that God steps into the ring with him and begins to kick up the dust of his life. Life change lesson number two is this. Change is possible only when we reach the end of our own plans and efforts. Just like Jacob, we try to fit God into our life. I've got my plans, my agenda, and boy, if I get God on my side, I'm going to get blessing now. But you don't invite God into your life. He invites you into his. Coming to Christ Is not an invitation to live your life better. Coming to Christ is an invitation into a new life. And that's what God needs to do with Jacob. You know, it's interesting that this is not the first time Jacob has had a face to face encounter with God. You'll find it in Genesis chapter 28. You may remember last week, we pointed out at the very beginning part of Jacob's real problem was that he personally had no relationship with God. When he conned Isaac into giving him the blessing, he said to Isaac, do you remember? The Lord your God has blessed me. But then we have this encounter. This is in between that con and Jacob fleeing to Laban. And so he's in the wilderness, and we see this experience. This is what we refer to as Jacob's ladder. Uh, We're going to read beginning at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his feet and lay down to sleep. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you. And wherever you go, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wow. Woof. Fantastic. What a blessing. What a pronouncement. What is Jacob's response? Verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his heel and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey. I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. (laughs) And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Do you see a startling difference between what God says to Jacob and how he responds? If you think about it, God has already blessed Jacob. God is blessing. What is Jacob doing? Bargaining. (laughs) Grappling. Notice how many times God says, I will. I will. This will. God is making a promise to him, not based on anything Jacob does. No if-thens about it. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be with you on this journey, and I'm going to bring you back. God is clear. He's already blessed. But Jacob, at this point in his life, is incapable of responding to that blessing. He can't receive it. He can't settle into it. He's still stuck in trying to get the blessing of his life in his own way. So in the same way, he manipulates and bargains his whole life. What does he do? He bargains with God. If God will do these things, then he will be my God. And then I'll give a tithe to him. Oh, does that hit home or what? How often do we think our faith is like a bargain with God? God, if you'll do all these things, I'll start giving to you as though God's up there saying, man, that's a deal I can't refuse. Count me in. I could use a little right now. That's not how it works. You can't bargain with God. This isn't about your plans and God blessing them. And you say, if God will do this, then I'll get around to giving to him. That's your agenda. You're Jacob. You're bargaining. When all God wants to do is just bless so that you can bless in return. That's Jacob. He's already had a face-to-face, but he's not ready to be transformed. That's the background that brings us up to this wrestling match, and we're, we're just going to quickly punch through it verse by verse. Verse 24, we see Jacob now all alone. Maybe I should have called this a, a whole other uh, life change lesson Because one of the things we have to understand is that the real transforming encounter that we have with God has to be a personal one. No matter how important community is, and you know how we talk about spiritual community, you're not a complete person, you're not a whole spiritual being. God can never fully form you into who you're to be with Christ if you're not in spiritual community. It's so critical. But you don't come to Christ as a group, you come to Him as an individual. And I want to speak directly to young adults here, to uh, husbands, wives. If you've been on this journey because of your spouse or, or young people, if you've been on this journey because your parents get you here, there are no inheritors of grace. You have to reach a point where you make a commitment to Christ. It has to be personal. The community is where you'll live that life, but the transformation happens with God on your own he's alone. Verse 25, how phenomenal that they wrestle to a stalemate. When the man, who we know of course by now, by the whole story, is clearly God as a man, it says that they wrestled all night to a stalemate. Just think about that. When I first read that, I want to go, what? Is that right? Am I getting that? This is God, right? They're wrestling to a stalemate. He could not overpower him. What? What's going on there? When I thought about that, I, I thought about me wrestling with my own kids when they were younger. One of the favorite things that my kids, Ellis here today, uh, remember was when i come home for work, and, and they'd just be waiting, and they'd say, Dad, can we wrestle? Can we wrestle? And I'd say, sure. We had these big, giant sofas at the time, and, you know, when your kids are small, you're Superman. So we'd go to the four corners of our living room. And then we'd say, go, and we all charge into the middle. And then they pile on top of me. And I love to take them and just throw them onto those big sofas, airborne. But then at some point, to keep their interest, I would weaken myself, right? I would allow myself to become vulnerable. Anna just told me, um, I don't know, just a few months ago, that she actually thought when she pinned me, she'd get in, oh, man, if you've seen Anna determined, you know what I'm talking about, (laughs) She'd push down on my shoulders and go, one, two, three, pinned. She thought for sure she had defeated me. Well, she had. She had because I had weakened myself, I had allowed myself to become less. You see what I'm saying? In one sense, that's what's going on here. And what God is choosing to do is to grapple with Jacob. First and foremost, as a battle of the wills. And when we contend with God at the point of our will, and God gives us the opportunity just to choose, you know what? Just like Jacob, God loses in your life every day when you put your will over the will of God. When God says, here's what I want for your life, and you say, well, I'm going to go off, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put that off for now. I want you to get right with this person. No, I like the bitterness. It kind of feels good inside when I scratch that itch emotionally. Your will is stronger in your life than God's will. And when God engages us on that level, when he chooses to give us that opportunity, we always win. That's what the Bible means by free will. And yeah, I believe in free will, but I think it's largely disastrous. Because when we exert our will, well, it results in Romans. No one seeks after God. See? You and I are no no different than Jacob here. At this moment, God is letting that happen. But what does he do? There's a moment that changes. Just like there's a moment where all my kids were on top of me, and they thought they had me, then all of a sudden I decided to exert my power as dad. And I just leap up and all of them with me and they feel my power at that stage when as a dad, you can do anything because your kids can fit in your arms and you can throw them across the room and they know dad is awesome. He's so strong. There's a moment in this wrestling when God says, all right, enough kidding around. The word here for touched Jacob's hip is, is a really important one. The lightest of touches. But the damage that's done by that brief touching of his hip is devastating. Jacob limps for the rest of his life. God touches Jacob, and he's a cripple for the rest of his life. And that brings us to life change lesson number three. And this is a hard one. God is willing to maim us in order to bless us. Make no mistake. You know, you know what I think of when I think of that? I think of the Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan, who's the Christ figure is running off and one of the uh, human children, asks one of the characters of Narnia, is he safe? And they go, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe. But he is good. See? The thing that all of us have to come to terms with is God isn't safe. We don't mess around with him. He's patient with us to a point, letting us exert our will. But He's determined to finish in us what He started. When He puts His call on our life, He's determined to bring about that change. It's a powerful thing. God will maim us. God's willing to break us in order to remake us. When God grapples with us, He leaves scars. And it's only at that point that we see a change in the scenario. You see, up until this point, if we've interpreted it right, God has been the one engaging, pressing Jacob. Jacob's been living his life by his own plans. God came to him years earlier, and he he turned that into his own plan. God has decided we're done with that. He comes up against Jacob's will, and Jacob is resistant, resistant, resistant. And then something changes, When God causes that catastrophic damage that stays with him his whole life, Jacob becomes the one reaching and grabbing God. That's what we see here. Now Jacob's the one that holds on and refuses to let go. And he cries out, bless me. What's happening here? Why the change in Jacob? What what has he been hungering for his whole life? He's been hungering for the blessing, the affirmation. First, he thought it was going to come from his father, who was giving it to his bigger brother. And he was willing to do anything. He was so desperate to get that blessing, to get that affirmation and that love. First, it's from his father. Then it's with his almost uh, erotic fixation with Rachel, where he tries to find that affirmation. And finally, when God utterly defeats him, He finally recognizes the only real blessing that can fill the deepest parts of his life is Abba's blessing, Abba, Heavenly Father's blessing. And now he knows, now he knows there's nothing more powerful than God. And at that point, he wants God, he wants God's blessing more than anything. And it's at that moment that God can finally do that changing work. It's there that God finally says, all right, now you're ready. You're no longer Jacob. Now you're Israel. It's really powerful. And that that brings us to the the next stage, verse 28. And we're going to read that together. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Or perhaps a better translation is prevailed. He struggled with God and prevailed. There's another one of those moments where you go, what? Picture this. God is standing over Jacob. He has lost everything. He can't go back. He can't go forward. And now he's crippled for the rest of his life. He is now utterly defeated by God. And God stands over him and says, winner! Jacob understands that because later on in the passage he says, I have encountered God and he spared me. He gets it. He understands that somehow this winning just simply means he survived it. But God looks at him at his time of absolute and utter defeat, a, a time of defeat that God himself has brought on him relentlessly and calls him the victor, the one who has prevailed. And that brings us to life change lesson number four. When it seems that God is fighting against us, he's actually fighting for us. When God gets down with us in the dust of our lives and grapples with us, it feels like he's against us, but he's not. He's not. When you feel that way, when it gets so hard that you have nothing else left, And you want to cry out and say, what does God have against me? He has nothing against you. In spite of how it feels right now, in spite of how broken and how helpless, and how much you are between a rock and a hard place, God is not against you. He may be wrestling with you, but he's fighting for you. You see, we are our own greatest enemies to the life that God has for us. We think it's obstacles. We think it's what other people have done to us. We think it's the circumstances in our life. We come to God and we say, if you'll fix my circumstances, if you'll fix my relationships, if you'll get so-and-so off my back, if you'll let so-and-so love me and affirm me, if you'll do all these things, that will be the life that you want for me. And God could fix all those things, and you'd never achieve that life because you are the greatest obstacle to the life that God has for you. And so in order for God to get you to that life, he will come against every area in your life that will defeat you. And some of those are the areas we love the most. And he'll relentlessly come against them. He'll go to battle, and he'll leave scars. But what he's doing is defeating those things in you that will get in the way of the life he has for you. And when he wins, you win. There is a powerful gospel element in here. Remember what we talked about in our series on how to interpret the Bible over the winter is that we always look for Christ here. And in this place, Christ is actually very easy to see if you look for him. What did God have to do in order to step down into Jacob's life, grapple with him and bring transformation. What did God do? He became a man. Theologians almost universally agree that every time in the Old Testament, we see the angel of the Lord, as he's called. We see God coming down as a man, that who people were encountering was the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, the third person of the Trinity, not yet a man named Jesus, but fully the Son of God engaged with people. So here's what I want you to think about. In Jesus, God became a man. He steps into the dust of our lives, and he grapples with all the evil in our lives. He weakens himself and becomes obedient to even death on a cross. He appeared weak. And then he overwhelmingly conquers through the resurrection. You see, what God did for Jacob was just a piece of what he does for all of those whom he calls. And because Jesus won, we win. New name, new person. I'm going to offer you an opportunity to meditate on God's call in your life. God's wrestling with you. One of the dangers of of God bringing you to that place of brokenness is that it's a decisive moment. It's a moment where you're either going to run from God forever, thinking that he's to blame for all the hardships, or it's a moment where you finally surrender and run to him completely. And maybe you have allowed your hardships to send you in the other direction. I want to encourage you to understand that God in the hardest places in your life, he's fighting for you. That his view is eternal. And that some of the tragedies that bring lifelong scars in our life that will mark us and damage perhaps our whole ability to function in this life alone are the very paths through which God is going to accomplish his most beautiful and eternal work in you. Maybe you need to recognize he's fighting for you and surrender to his work. And maybe for some of you, this is really an opportunity to ask the question Am am I, is it my father's God? Is it my mother's God? Is it my husband's or my wife's God? Is it time for me to get a new name, to be adopted into the family of God because I have surrendered to Christ, been allowed his death in the cross? And his victory in the empty tomb to be my death and victory into newness of life. Maybe you need to surrender to Christ at this very moment. And it's just that simple. Lord, like, like Jacob, I surrender. I surrender. I confess my sin, and I receive your grace through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are just so grateful for these moments. And we just open up our hearts, and we do it... We do it uh, in in an uneasy way because we know when you work, you're going to do battle in our very hearts and in our very lives. And we need to trust your goodness in that. We need to open up to it, knowing that you're going to turn that for good. You're going to transform us through it. And, Father, we say we believe, help our unbelief. We say we trust you. And at the same time, we ask you to increase our faith.